Section 31 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 31. Chapter 8. The Dynasty of Valentinian and Theodosius the Great by Norman H. Baines Chapter 8, Part 6 At length in the West, the formal peace was broken, and in 387, the army of Gaul invaded Italy. Of late, Justina's influence had gained the upper hand in Milan, and the Arianism of Valentinian afforded a laudable pretext for the action of Maximus. He came as the champion of oppressed orthodoxy. Previous warnings had produced no effect on the heretical court. It must be chastened by the scourge of God. It would seem that Valentinian's opposition to Ambrose had for the time alienated the bishop, and the emperor no longer chose him as his ambassador. Dominus sought to strengthen good relations between Trier and Milan, and asked that help should be given in the task of driving back the barbarians who threatened Pannonia. The cunning of Maximus seized the favourable moment. He detached a part of his own army with orders to march to the support of Valentinian. He himself, however, at the head of his troops, followed close behind and was thus able to force the passes of the Cotian Alps unopposed. This treacherous attack upon Valentinian was marked by the murder of Merobordes, the minister who had carried through the hasty election at Bregescio, autumn 387. From Milan, Justina and her son fled to Aquileia. From Aquileia to Thessalonica, where they were joined by Theodosius, who had recently married Gala, the sister of Valentinian II. Here it would seem that the Emperor of the East received an embassy from Maximus, the latter doubtless claiming that he had only acted in the interests of the creed of Nicaea, of which his co-Augustus was so staunch a champion. The action of Theodosius was characteristic. He gave no definite reply, while he endeavoured to convert the fugitive emperor to orthodoxy. The whole winter through he made his preparations for the war, which he could no longer honourably escape. Goths, Huns and Alans readily enlisted. Pacatus tells us that from the Nile to the Caucasus, from the Taurus range to the Danube, men streamed to his standards. Promoters who had recently annihilated a host of Grutungi, under Odotheus, upon the Danube, 386, commanded the cavalry and Tamasius the infantry. Among the officers were Richemer and Arbogast. In June, Theodosius, with Valentinian, marched towards the west. He could look for no support from Italy, for Rome had fallen into the hands of Maximus during the preceding January and the usurper's fleet was cruising in the Adriatic. Theodosius reached Stobai on June the 14th, and Scupai, Uscub, on June the 21st. 
It would seem that emissaries of Maximus had spread disaffection among the Germans in the Eastern Army. But a plot to murder Theodosius was disclosed in time and the traitors were cut down in the swamps to which they had fled for refuge. The emperor advanced to Siscia on the save. Here, despite their inferiority in numbers, his troops swam the river and charged and routed the enemy. It is possible that in this engagement, Andragathius, the foremost general on the side of Maximus, met his death. Theodosius won a second victory at Poetovio, where the Western forces under the command of the usurper's brother, Marcellinus, fled in wild disorder. Many joined the victorious army, and Imena Lybac, which had stubbornly withstood a long siege, welcomed Theodosius within its walls. Maximus retreated into Italy and encamped around Achelia, but he was allowed no opportunity to collect fresh forces wherewith to renew the struggle. Theodosius followed hard on the fugitive's track. Maximus, with the courage of despair, fell upon his pursuers, but was driven back into Achelia and forced to surrender. Three miles from the city walls, the captive was brought into the emperor's presence. The soldiers anticipated the victor's pity and hurried Maximus off to his death, probably 28th of July, 388. Only a few of his partisans, among them his Moorish guards, shared their leader's fate. His fleet was defeated off Sicily and Victor, who had been left as Augustus in Gaul, was slain by Arbogast. A general pardon quieted unrest in Italy, and Theodosius remained in Milan during the winter. Valentinian was restored to power, and with the death of his mother Justina, his conversion to orthodoxy was completed. Maximus had fallen, and for a court orator, his character possessed no redeeming feature. But from less prejudiced authorities, we seem to gain a picture of a man whose only fault was his enforced disloyalty to Theodosius, and of an emperor who showed himself a vigorous and upright ruler, and who could plead as excuse for his avarice the pressure of long-threatened war with his co-Augustus. From these exactions, which were perhaps unavoidable, Gaul suffered severely, and on his departure from the west, while Nanianus and Quintinus were acting as joint magistri militum. The Franks burst across the Rhine under Jena borders, Marcomir and Sunno, and threatened Cologne. After a Roman victory at the Silver Carvanaria near Tournai, Quintinus invaded barbarian territory from Novaceum, but the campaign was a disastrous failure. On the fall of Victor, Arbogast remained under the vague title of Cums or Count, the virtual ruler of Gaul, while Carietto and Cyrus succeeded as Magistri Militum, the nominees of Maximus. Arbogast, on his arrival, counselled a punitive expedition, but it was seen that Theodosius did not accept the advice. A peace was concluded. Marcomir and Sunno gave hostages, and Arbogast himself retired to winter quarters in Trier. 
Valentinian remained with Theodosius in Milan during the winter of 388-9 and was with him on the 13th of June 389 when he made his solemn entry into Rome accompanied by his five-year-old son Honorius. On this, apparently his only visit to the western capital, he anxiously endeavoured to weaken the power and influence of paganism while he effected reforms both in the social and municipal life of the city. To the stern and haughty Diocletian, the familiarity of the populace had been insufferable. Theodosius was liberal with his gifts, attended the public games, and won all hearts by his ready courtesy and genial humanity. In the autumn of 389, he returned to Milan, and there he remained during 390, that memorable year in which church and state met as opposing powers and a righteous victory lay with the church. In fact, he who would write of affairs of state during the last years of the 4th century must ever go borrowing from the church historians. He dare not at his peril omit the figure of the counsellor of emperor after emperor the fearless, tyrannous, passionate and loving bishop of Milan. Though the conduct of Ambrose may at times be arbitrary and repellent, the critic in his own despite admits perforce that he was a man worthy of a sovereign's trust and confidence. The facts of the massacre of Thessalonica are well known. Popular discontent had been aroused by the billeting upon the inhabitants of barbarian troops and resentment sought its opportunity. Botherich, captain of the garrison, imprisoned a favourite charioteer for gross immorality and refused to free him at the demand of the citizens. The mob seized the occasion, disappointed of its pleasure, it murdered Botherich with savage brutality. The anger of Theodosius was ungovernable, and the repeated prayers of Ambrose for mercy were of no avail. The court circle had long been jealous of the bishop's influence, and had endeavoured to exclude him from any interference with state policy. Ambrose knew well that he no longer enjoyed the full confidence of the emperor. Theodosius listened to his ministers, who urged an exemplary punishment, and the order was issued for a ruthless vengeance upon Thessalonica. The message cancelling the imperial command arrived too late to save the city. The emperor had decreed retribution, and his officers gave rein to their passions. Upon the people crowded in the circus, the soldiers poured, and an indiscriminate slaughter ensued. At least 7,000 victims fell before the troops stayed their hand. Ambrose, pleading illness, withdrew from Milan and refused to meet Theodosius. With his own hand he wrote a private letter to the emperor, acknowledging his zeal and love for God, but claiming that for such a crime of headlong passion there must be profound contrition. As David listened to Nathan, so let Theodosius hear God's minister. Until repentance, he dare not offer the sacrifice in the emperor's presence. The letter is the appeal of undaunted courage to the essential nobility of the character of Theodosius. The gusts of fury passed and remorse issued in penitence. With his subjects around him in the cathedral of Milan, 
the emperor, stripped of his royal purple, bowed himself in humility before the offended majesty of heaven. Men have sought to heighten the victory of the church, and fables have clustered round the story. But the dignity of fact, in its simplicity, is far more splendid than the ornate fancies of any legend. Bishop and emperor had proved each worthy of the other. In 391, Theodosius returned to Constantinople by way of Thessalonica, and Valentinian was left to rule the West. He did not reach Gaul till the autumn of 391. It was too late. Three years of undisputed power had left Arbogast without a rival in Gaul. It was not the troops alone who looked to their unconquered captain with blind admiration and unquestioning devotion. He was surrounded by a circle of Frankish fellow countrymen who owed to him their promotion, while his honourable character, his generosity and the sheer force of his personality had brought even the civil authorities to his side. There was one law in Gaul and that was the will of Arbogast. There was only one superior whom Arbogast acknowledged, and he was the Emperor Theodosius, who had given the West into his charge. From the first, Valentinian's authority was flouted. His legislative power was allowed to rust unused. His orders were disobeyed, and his palace became his prison. Not even the imperial purple could protect Harmonius, who was slain by Arbogast's orders at the emperor's very feet. Valentinian implored support from Theodosius and contemplated seeking refuge in the east. He solemnly handed the haughty count his dismissal, but Arbogast tore the paper in pieces with the retort that he would only receive his discharge from the emperor who had appointed him. A letter was dispatched by Valentinian urging Ambrose to come to him with all speed to administer the sacrament of baptism. Clearly he thought his life was threatened. He hailed the pretext of barbarian disturbances about the Alpine passes and himself prepared to leave for Italy. But mortification and pride kept him still in Vienne. The pagan party considered restoration of the altar of victory but the disciple of Ambrose refused the ambassador's request. A few days later it was known that Valentinian had been strangled. Contemporaries could not determine whether he had met his death by violence or by his own hand. 15th of May, 392. Ambrose seems to have accepted the latter alternative and the guilt of Arbogast was never proven. With the longed-for rite of baptism so near at hand, suicide certainly appears improbable. But perhaps the strain and stress of those days of waiting broke down the emperor's endurance and the mockery of his position became too bitter for a son of Valentinian I. His death, it must be admitted, did not find Arbogast unprepared. He could not declare himself emperor for Christian hatred Roman pride and Frankish jealousy barred the way. Thus he became the first of a long line of barbarian kingmakers. He overcame the reluctance of Eugenius and placed him on the throne. The first sovereign to be at once the nominee and puppet of a barbarian general 
was a man of good family, formerly a teacher of rhetoric and later a high-placed secretary in the imperial service, the friend of Richemer and Symmachus, and a peace-loving civilian. He would not endanger Arbogast's authority. Himself a Christian, although an associate of the pagan aristocrats in Rome, he was unwilling to alienate the sympathies of either party and adopted an attitude of impartial tolerance. He hoped to find safety in half measures. Rome saw a feverish revival of the old faith with strange processions of oriental deities while Flavianus, a leading pagan, was made Praetorian Praefect. The altar of victory was restored, but Eugenius sought to respect Christian prejudices, and the temples did not recover their confiscated revenues. These were granted as a personal gift to the petitioners. But in the 4th century, none save minorities would hear of toleration, and men drew the inference that he who was no partisan was little better than a traitor. The Orthodox Church, in the person of Ambrose, withdrew from Eugenius, as from an apostate. The new emperor naturally recognised Theodosius and Arcadius as co-Augusti, but in all the transactions between the Western Court and Constantinople, the person of Arbogast was discreetly veiled. His name was not suggested for the consulship, and it was no Frankish soldier who headed the embassy to Theodosius. The wisdom of Athens in the person of Rufinus and the purity of Christian bishops attested the kingmaker's innocence, but the ambiguous reply of Theodosius hardly disguised his real intentions. The nomination of Eugenius was, it would seem, disregarded in the East, while in West and East alike, diplomacy was but a means for gaining time before the inevitable arbitrament of war. To secure Gaul during his absence, Arbogast determined to impress the barbarians with a wholesome dread of the power of Rome. In a winter campaign, he devastated the territories of Bructeri and Chamavai, while Alamanni and Franks were forced to accept terms of peace, whereby they agreed to furnish recruits for the Roman armies. Thus freed from anxiety in the west, Arbogast and Eugenius left with large reinforcements for Italy, where it seems that the new emperor had been acknowledged from the time of his accession, spring 393. In the following year, Theodosius marched from Constantinople, end of May, 394. Honorius, who had been created Augustus in January 393, was left behind with Arcadius in the capital. The emperor appointed Tomasius as general-in-chief with Stilicho for his subordinate. Immense preparations had been made for the campaign. Of the Goths alone, some 20,000 under the leadership of Saul, Gainus and Bacarius had been enlisted in the army. Arbogast, either through the claim of kinship or as virtual ruler of the West, could bring into the field large forces of both Franks and Gauls, but he was outnumbered by the troops of Theodosius. Eugenius did not leave Milan till the 1st of August. Flavianus, 
Flavianus as augur, declared the victory was assured. He had himself undertaken the defence of the passes of the Julian Alps, where he placed gilded statues of Jupiter to declare his devotion to paganism. Theodosius overcame all resistance with ease, and Flavianus, discouraged and ashamed, committed suicide. At about an equal distance between Aemona and Achillea, on the stream of the Frigidus, Whitbark, the decisive battle took place. The western army was encamped in the plain, awaiting the descent of Theodosius from the heights. Arbogast had posted Arbicio in ambush with orders to fall upon the unsuspecting troops as they left the higher ground. The Goths led the van and were the first to engage the enemy. Despite their heroic valour, the attack was unsuccessful. Bacorius was slain and 10,000 Goths lost their lives. Eugenius, as he rewarded his soldiers, considered the victory decisive and the generals of Theodosius counselled retreat. Through the hours of the night, the emperor prayed alone and in the morning, 6th of September, with the battle cry of, where is the god of Theodosius? He renewed the struggle. Arbicio played the traitor's part and leaving his hiding place joined the eastern army. But it was no human aid which decided the issue of the day. A tempestuous hurricane swept down upon the enemy, blinded by clouds of dust, their shields wrenched from their grasp, their missiles carried back upon themselves. The troops of Eugenius turned in panic flight. Theodosius had called on God and heaven had answered. The moral effect was overwhelming. Eugenius was surrendered by his own soldiers and slain. Arbogast fled into the mountains and two days later fell by his own hand. Theodosius did not abuse his victory. He granted a general pardon. Even the usurper's ministers lost only their rank and titles, which were restored to them in the following year. But the fatigues and hardships of the war had broken down the emperor's health. Honorius was summoned from Constantinople and was present in Milan at his father's death, 17th of January 395. From the invective of heathen critics and the flattery of court orators, it is no easy task rightly to estimate the character and work of Theodosius. To the Christians he was naturally first and foremost the founder of an orthodox state and the scourge of heretics and pagans, while to the worshippers of the older faith it was precisely his religious views and the legislation inspired by them which inflamed their furious resentment. The judgment of both parties on the emperor's policy as a whole was determined by their religious preconceptions. Rome at least was his debtor. In the darkest hour after the disaster at Hadrianople, he had not despaired of the empire, but had proved himself at once statesman and general. The Goths might have become to the provinces of the east what the Alamanni had long been to Gaul. The fact that it was otherwise was primarily due to the diplomacy of Theodosius. Retrenchment and economy, a breathing space in which to recover from her utter exhaustion, 
were a necessity for the Roman world. A brilliant and meteoric sovereign would have been but an added peril. To the men of his time, the unwearying caution of Theodosius was a positive and precious virtue. His throne was supported by no hereditary dynastic sentiment, and he thus consciously and deliberately made a bid for public favour. He abandoned court tradition and appealed with the directness of a soldier to the sympathies of his subjects. In this he was justified. Throughout his reign it was only in the West that usurpers arose, and even they would have been content to remain his colleagues, had he only consented. But this was not the only result of his refusal to play the demigod. Valentinian had often been perforce, a fool of his ministers, but Theodosius determined to gather his own information and to see for himself the abuses from which the empire suffered. His legislation is essentially detailed and practical. The accused must not be hailed off forthwith on information laid against him, but must be given 30 days to put his house in order. Provision is to be made for the children of the criminal, whether he be banished or executed, for they are not to suffer for their father's sins. And some share of the convict's property is to pass to his issue. Men are not to be ruined by any compulsion to undertake high priestly offices, as that of the high priesthood of the province of Syria, which entailed the holding of costly public games. Provincials should not be driven to sell corn to the state below its market price, while corn from seacoast lands is to be shipped to neighbouring seacoast towns and not to distant inland districts in order that the cost of transport may not ruin the farmer. Fixed measures in metal and stone must be used by imperial tax collectors. The extortion may be made more difficult, while defensores are to be appointed to see to it that through the connivance of the authorities, robbers and highwaymen shall not escape unpunished. Theodosius himself had superintended the work of clearing Macedonia, from troops of brigands, and he directed that men were to be permitted to take the law into their own hands if robbed on the high roads or in the villages by night, and might slay the offender where he stood. Examples might be increased at will, but such laws as these suffice to illustrate the point. In a word, Theodosius knew where the shoe pinched, and he did what he could to ease the pain. Even when claims of church and state conflicted, he refused to sacrifice justice to the demands of orthodox intolerance. In one case, the tyrannous insistence of Ambrose conquered, and Christian monks who had at Callinicum destroyed a Jewish synagogue were at last freed from the duty of making reparation. But even here, the stubborn resistance of the emperor shows the general principles which governed his administration. Though naturally merciful, so that contemporaries wondered at his clemency towards the followers of defeated rivals, yet when seized by some sudden outburst of passion, he could be terrible in his ferocity. He himself was conscious of his great failing, and when his anger had passed, men knew that he was the readier to pardon. Prerogativa ignocendi, irat indignatum fuis. But with every acknowledgement made of his weakness, he served the empire well.
he brought the East from chaos into order. And even if it be on other grounds, posterity can hardly dispute the judgment of the Church, or deny that the Emperor has been rightly styled Theodosius the Great. End of section 31